This is The Rounds Table. Right, hello, Rounds Table listeners. It's me, Freddie Frost, here in Liverpool in the United Kingdom. I'm joined once again by my good friend, Alex Picard, uh, emergency medicine trainee at St. George's in London. Alex, hello. Hello there, Frosty. Thank you for having me back for the uh, third time on the Rounds Table podcast, coming to you from South London currently. Absolute pleasure to have you here. Right, let's get started straight away. I'm going to kick us off tonight and I'm going to tell you about an interesting study published recently in the New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, it's called The Pixaban to Prevent VTE in Patients with Cancer. The lead author was Mark Carrier and he's from Ottawa in Canada. Okay, Freddie, um, just to get us started, can you tell us what is the bottom line of this article? Yeah, sure. So in this multi-centered randomized control trial of prophylactic apixaban uh, in people with malignancy, apixaban was associated with less VTE, but more bleeds than placebo. So another very interesting article there, Freddie. Tell us a bit more about why you chose the article and why this is important. So clots certainly impart significant morbidity and mortality on people with cancer and even people with cancer who don't have clots often undergo extra investigations often at great expense and occasionally harm to investigate clots i guess we've all seen the patient who's got cancer shots of breath chest pain for whatever reason they get full work up for pe pretty much regardless of everything else now over the last few years, NOACs have become well established in atrial fibrillation for prophylaxis against VTE, but also in the treatment of VTE. And I guess the next frontier in terms of NOACs is understanding where they fit in the management of cancer-associated VTEs. Recently, there's been a number of studies coming out, observational study of rivaroxaban, an interventional study with idoxaban using the NOACs in acute VTE during cancer. And so I guess this is taking things a step further and seeing whether actually we can use them in a prophylactic preventative setting, kind of like we do in high-risk patients with AF. So yeah, I thought it was an interesting study. Yeah. And I think further to that, Freddie, as well, the use of NOACs, you know, people not having to be stabbed every day with your low molecular weight heparin. I think that's, you know, these patients, in terms of the morbidity of that, you know, the sooner that we can get these cancer patients using these and avoiding that, the better, really. Yeah, absolutely. If it was me or my relative with cancer, and I'd certainly prefer to be taking a tablet twice a day than being stabbed. Right. Should I crack on and tell you about the methods? Absolutely. Yeah. Far away, Freddie. Yeah, so this was a multi-centre randomised controlled trial performed in North America, Canada actually predominantly, and it was funded in part by the drug company Bristol Myers Squibb and partly by the Canadian Health Research uh, sort of authority and they included people with a confirmed cancer who are about to start a new course of chemotherapy so that was people that could have had a new diagnosis of cancer they could have had a progression a previously stable disease and they're about to start chemotherapy again or it could have been people who had a recurrence and were about to start chemotherapy in that setting. So they pretty much included all cancers apart from things that could be associated with coagulopathy so that excluded some of the hematological malignancies and also some liver malignancies. They used a score called the Karana score, which is a score that takes things into account such as BMI, past medical history and type of cancer in working out what your risk of having a clot is. They only included people with a Karana score greater than two. For reference, that's uh, roughly a 10% risk of having a VTE in the next six months. 
Just to extrapolate a bit further on the Corona score, Freddie, just because I'm not sure I've heard of that one before, is that just applied to cancer patients, is it? Yeah, so it's just, it's just applied to cancer patients. And yeah, just to go in a bit more detail about it, because I, I hadn't heard about it before either. So it uses a type of cancer, blood counts, and body mass index specifically to try and work out what sort of risk you have. So yeah, it's quite well validated in the cancer setting and can and yeah, and that ten percent over a score of two is the is the is the magic number. Okay. So just moving on from there, Freddie, do you want to just tell me a bit about what the particular intervention was in this study? Yeah, so it was six months of a Pixaban 2.5 milligrams BD, so the lower dose, prophylactic dose that we're used to using atrial fibrillation. Uh, the comparator was uh, placebo. And in terms of the outcomes that they were interested in, the primary outcome was a rate of VTE, which they defined as any proximal clot or a proximal DVT in the arms or the legs or any PE at all. Now, it's important to sort of note that they weren't routinely screening these people with imaging, so they weren't routinely doppling their legs or doing CTPAs on them. But if, as part of their follow-up, they presented with symptoms suggestive of VTE, then they're only investigated at that point. So these were clots that were sort of causing symptoms rather than incidental findings. Fine. So potentially there could have been patients in the study with occult subacute DVTs, PEs that may have not been picked up. But if there was any sign that they were, they had a P or a DVT, they were screened. Quickly. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I guess that's important because those are the sort of symptomatic things, are the things that I'm going to I'm going to worry about if I'm a patient moving over the next six months. Great. So moving on, Freddie, do you want to take us through some of the main safety outcomes of the trial? Yeah. So obviously. With all these NOAC studies, we're interested in clots, but we're also interested in bleeding. So the main safety outcome was bleeding events. They graded the bleeding events from one to four. So a grade one would be very mild bleeding, no clinical instability, no treatment needed. Grade two would be something where there was a bleeding, uh, wasn't any clinical instability, hemodynamic compromise, but there was some treatment needed. So I think so that would be like an epistaxis or a lower GI bleed that didn't need any transfusion or uh, further intervention or management. Uh, grade three, that's where things start to get a bit more serious. So then you've got some hemodynamic instability and you therefore clearly require uh, urgent treatment as well. And then four is the top end. So that's all death before hospital or a death very soon after arrival in hospital due to bleeding. Okay. So thanks for setting the scene of that study, Freddie. If we just move on to the results, can you take us through the main findings yeah, sure. So the study randomized just over 500 patients. Just to give you a bit of an idea about what sort of people we're looking at, the average age was 61, slightly more females than males. The majority of cancers were from lymphoma, some gynecological malignancies and lung cancer. There were GI and brain cancers also included. Now, the treatment aim was just six months, so that's 180 days. The average time of treatment after people had dropped out and deaths and things like that was 150. 55 days, so almost 180, but not quite there. And overall, in terms of the results, the primary outcome, so VTE, that was significantly reduced in the apixaban arm compared to placebo. So 4% of patients in the apixaban versus 10% in the placebo suffered a VTE. That gave us a hazard ratio of 0.4 and the p-value of less than 0.001. 
Um, so you've talked a bit about the results of the VTE in this trial. Do you want to take us through the uh, results of bleeding? Yeah, so bleeding, obviously, the other thing that we worry about with NOAX, and they did find that bleeding was significantly higher overall in the apixaban arm. So 3.5% of patients in the apixaban arm suffered a bleed and 1.8% of patients in the placebo arm suffered a bleed. That gives, has a ratio of exactly 2.0 and a p-value of 0.046, so just sneaking into statistical significance there. Other safety outcomes, including minor bleeding and mortality, there wasn't any difference between those two. Okay, so just moving on to a bit more discussion, Freddie, were there any interesting points or observations that you've picked up from this study or anything that's caught your eye that you think we need to go into a bit more detail? Yeah, so I guess the first thing when you look at the study flow diagram is there's quite a significant dropout rate. So both arms had about 250, 260 patients randomised in them, but there was approximately a sort of 40 to 50% dropout rate in both arms in terms of people who didn't complete the 180 days treatment. Now, some of that would have been mortality, and that's sort of expected, I guess, in when you're doing studies in people with cancer, some of that is naturally dropout, but that's quite a high dropout rate. And even when I've been through the appendix sort of looking at the listed reasons, it's not entirely clear what made people drop out of this study. The second thing that caught my eye is that the study included GI malignancies. Now, the recent Adoxaban study, which I guess only came out after this study was well underway, showed that using NOAX in people with GI malignancies was actually higher risk for uh, bleeding than other people. And so although these people were included, the GI malignancies didn't make up that much percentage. I think it was less than 10% overall, but is sort of at least uh, in the back of my mind as to whether that might be skewing some of the results. Now, the final thing that I think is quite interesting is when, when we consider the bleeding, because it's clear that the Apixaban reduced the VTE quite significantly, and there was that uh, subsequent increase in bleeding as well. Now, if you look at the bleeding events that actually occurred, and we look at how they were graded, 90% of the Apixaban group had grades 1 to 2. So we're talking minor bleeding might have needed a bit of treatment. And that's 90% compared to 60% in the placebo. If we look at three to four, so those are the ones that had clinical instability or death, then 10% of the apixaban patients were in that category compared to 40% in the placebo. So yes, there were more bleeds with apixaban, but generally they were less severe than placebo and didn't have an effect on mortality overall. Very good, Freddie. So it's interesting that last point you made there. I think that just off the top of my head, that that data seems to be quite comparable to the studies looking at warfarin versus DOAX. And again, showing that although the, the bleeding rates in DOAX generally in AF and non-AF is higher, the actual number of severe bleeds tends to be less and the people that die of these bleeds is less as far as I've seen. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that that's mirrored. That certainly seems to be a similar sort of pattern here. So, Freddie, just moving on to the summary, can you just talk us through some of the main learning points of this article? Do you think it's going to change your day-to-day practice at all? Yes, I mean, this is a RCT answering a question where there is potential, at least, to improve significant mobility and mortality. As with all the NOAC trials and when using NOACs clinically, we have to weigh up the pros of stopping clots against the cons of bleeding. This is the first study in this setting using proactively and I guess prophylactically using NOAX to prevent cancer and they treated pretty much everyone with those few exclusions which were the people who had hematological cancers and liver malignancies so I mean 
Overall, the fact that there was a significant increase in bleeding, I don't think it's going to change my practice at this stage, although there was that signal that the bleeds were less severe. However, it does pave the way, I think, for a more individualized approach. Perhaps people with higher Karana scores or other comorbidities that might make clotting more likely, a more selective approach might be the way forward. Thanks, Freddie, for that last discussion. Swiftly moving on to my article for this week, I'm going to be talking about something called the OPTIC trial. That was a trial that was published in February 2019 in the New England Journal of Medicine, and it was looking at a new antibiotic, so something called amadocycline, which is a aminomethylcycline, which is a type of tetracycline antibiotic that was used against community-acquired bacterial pneumonia. This was published by Stets et al. And it looked to compare the effectiveness of this new antibiotic versus moxifloxacin. It's a drug that blocks protein synthesis and is used against lots of common pathogens for community-acquired pneumonia and has been developed by a company called Paratech Pharmaceuticals. Great. Uh, Yeah, I'm really happy we're going to talk about this one today because I've seen quite a lot of chat about it on social media. It seems to have caused quite a stir so let's get into it why don't you tell me what the bottom line is for this article so the bottom line of this article is that it is a double blind randomized non-inferiority trial it included 774 patients with clinical signs or symptoms of pneumonia and imaging consistent with pneumonia it looked at giving daily amadocycline versus moxifloxacin and the overall findings was that amadocycline was non-inferior to moxifloxacin for the treatment of community acquired bacterial pneumonia Okay, great. So uh, yeah, probably useful just to tell us a bit more about why this article is important in sort of the the context of our existing knowledge. I think importantly, one of the things that I took away was that the in terms of positives, to give the the authors the benefit of the doubt, the fact that there is a huge need for new novel antibiotics for resistant infections. As we all well know, there are many multi-drug resistant infections on the rise with very few new antibiotics being developed. So I think the fact that there are antibiotics out there being developed is a good thing. Community-acquired pneumonia itself is one of the leading causes of death in the world, especially amongst the elderly. And in the paper itself, they quote that the annual cost is roughly 10 billion euros per annum in Europe alone. That doesn't include North America. So the financial burden, obviously, for this disease is enormous. And anything we can do to try and reduce that burden, I guess, is a good thing. However, despite the positives of this article... The way in which this trial has been conducted has raised eyebrows among the scientific community. So first of all, there's been a lot of discussion between the relationship of a leading journal and a pharmaceutical company. It was noted in this same issue of the New England Journal of Medicine that were, I think, up to four articles that were sponsored by pharmaceutical company, industry-sponsored trials. Um, the fact that this this trial was not only sponsored by that this company, it was also designed, it was conducted, and the data was analysed also by the pharmaceutical company. And you've just got to pose the question, how independent is this trial? The particular study design and methodology has also been criticised and people have suggested that the fact that they used a non-inferiority trial as opposed to a randomised control trial, that they are purporting to make it a positive study. 
something else that's been highlighted is the fact that a course of this new drug can cost up to $3,000 versus approximately $30 to $100 of moxifloxacin, which would be the competitor drug that essentially has the same benefits and outcomes as we will come on to later. And it's interesting that in the article itself, this is lifted directly from the article, it even says Paratec Pharmaceuticals designed and conducted the trial and prepared the statistical analysis plan. Analysis Analyses were performed and data interpreted by Paratec Pharmaceuticals in conjunction with the authors. So we'll just leave that there for the moment and we will move on to the methods. Yeah, sure. So why don't you tell us, so yeah, so tell us about the design of the study. So essentially it was a non-inferiority trial. The setting of the trial was across 86 sites worldwide, ranging from Europe, North America, South America, Middle East and Africa. And the trial ran from November 2015 to February 2017. Patients were randomized using an interactive computer-generated response system that generated essentially a block sequence and stratified the patients according to their PSI class, which is their pneumonia severity index. We'll come on to talk about that in a second. And also whether that the patients had had any other bacterial treatment in the first 72 hours of their presentation and also their geographical region as well played a part in that randomization in terms of the methods itself so the patients received either 7 to 14 days of either omadocycline 100 milligrams two doses in the first 24 hours followed by 100 milligrams once daily or they received moxifloxacin 400 milligrams iv once daily both drugs they aimed for a PO switch at three days, but as we'll come on to in the results, um, this didn't seem to happen, and that actually that the mean length of IV treatment was a lot longer than they initially stated in their method. Okay, so you mentioned the PSI class there. That's the pneumonia severity index. Were they sort of accepting everyone in there? What was the patient group like? Yeah, so just to quickly explain for the listeners what the PSI score is. So that is the pneumonia severity index. It's a risk score that runs from one to five, and it basically predicts the risk of death from pneumonia. So one being the lowest risk and five being the highest risk. So patients in this study, if they were a PSI score of five, were excluded from the trial. Now, a PSI score of four, your risk of death is 8.2% to 9.3%. A score of five that jumps to 27 to 31 percent risk of death so you can see that they excluded quite a lot of the sicker patients with caps essentially okay and so what about the other inclusion exclusions so in terms of the inclusion criteria, so patients were had to be over the age of 18, 40% of the patients were more than 65 years old, and more than 20% of them were 75 years old. So actually there were quite a number of younger patients than we would generally see with CAPS coming into, you know, from in, in my own experience since the emergency department. The, these patients had to have three or more symptoms of either cough, purulent sputum production, difficulty breathing, or pleuritic chest pain. They also had to have at least two abnormal vital signs and at least one clinical sign, a laboratory finding associated with a community-acquired pneumonia. They also had to have a radiologically confirmed pneumonia and they were also rated with their PSI score as we talked about before. 
other exclusion criteria just to mention on top of the PSI score of five was that if they had a HAP, so hospital acquired pneumonia, an empyema, liver disease, renal insufficiency, or if the patients had had more than a single dose of an antibiotic in the first 72 hours, they were also excluded from the trial. Okay. So it sounds like they could come into A&E, have their first shot of IV antibiotic, and then be recruited after that. So that was, that was allowed. Absolutely, yeah. As far as I can see, yeah. Okay, great. So we've talked about the interventions themselves, a bit about the study design. What were the outcomes in the study? Okay, Fred. So the primary outcome of this trial was what the authors described as the an early clinical response. So that was defined as survival with improvement and in at least two of the symptoms. So the ones we mentioned before, cough, sputum production, pleuritic chest pain, difficulty breathing, and no worsening of symptoms at 72 to 120 hours without the need for a rescue antibiotic. So a change in treatment in order to improve their symptoms. Okay. Uh, secondary endpoints, anything else the investigators were interested in? Yep, so the secondary endpoint of the study was an investigator-assessed clinical response at a post-treatment evaluation of 5 to 10 days after the last dose with clinical response that was defined as a resolution or improvement in signs or symptoms to the extent that further antibacterial therapy was unnecessary. And they defined this by a non-inferiority margin of 10 percentage points. Great, well, let's move on to the results then. So what are the main findings of the study? So the main finding of the study was that omadocycline was non-inferior to moxifloxacin for early clinical response with 81.1% versus 82.7% respectively with a difference of minus 1.6 percentage points and a 95% confidence interval of minus 7.1 to 3.8. The rates of the investigator assessed clinical response at the post-treatment evaluation, so the secondary outcome, was 87.6% versus 85.1% respectively, again with a difference of 2.5 percentage points with a 95% confidence interval of minus 2.4 to 7.4. Okay, so both those confidence intervals cross zero. So essentially, the authors are trying to tell us that amadocycline is non-inferior to moxifloxacin in terms of efficacy. What about safety and things like that? So looking at adverse events, there were a total of 41% of patients had an adverse event in amadocycline and 48.5 in the moxifloxacin group. So just to go into a bit more detail in what that exactly was. So the most frequent event was GI symptoms, and that was 10.2% in the amadocycline group versus 18% in the moxifloxacin group. And the largest difference in symptoms was there was a only a 1% instance of diarrhea in the amadocycline group versus 8% in the moxifloxacin group. So moving on to mortality, Freddie, There were 12 deaths in the study in total, eight in the amadocycline group and four in the moxifloxacin group. It's not mentioned in the paper itself as whether this is statistically significant, but you and I have just done some maths and we think that this is not statistically significant as far as we can see. Right, okay, yeah, so interesting study, new antibiotic in the arsenal of antibiotics against pneumonias. What caught your eye about this study and what do we need to discuss? Okay, so I think... 
the fact that the end point of the trial and the non-inferiority study design, the fact that, you know, the authors of the study set the end point for that non-inferiority, so they demonstrated that it was no more than a 10% failure, you know, essentially it is it is easier to show that this is a positive study than if it was a true double-blinded RCT compared against the current gold standard of treatment. And I think as well, bringing into that the fact that the difference in the cost as well, you know, you're saying that you're happy to accept 10% less in performance of your drug, but the fact that the cost can be up to 300 times more expensive, $30 versus $3,000. Further to this, there was no effort in the trial to demonstrate superiority. There's no logistical or financial benefits that I can see against the current treatment. So it's, you know, they're both once daily drugs. It's not that it's like, you know, it's easier for the patients to take or they don't have to take as much. Again, it doesn't look as though there's much difference in terms of the the, uh, side effects or morbidity and mortality. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. When you see a non-inferiority study, you want the new drug to have some sort of benefit for the patient, whether that is easier to take or it's got less cost or less side effects. But we want to know that effectively it's it's as effective. Like you said, this drug doesn't seem to have much obvious benefit over moxifloxacin and the cost is significantly higher. So I can't see it being the uptake being massive. So yeah, that's that's a really important point as to why the study design, the non-inferiority study design was perhaps not appropriate. Okay, anything else that you noticed? Yeah, so there's a few other points just to pick out from this article. I think they had a real opportunity here to look at how effective the drug was potentially against multi-drug resistant organisms. And in the study, they've basically shown in the two arms the positive cultures of the various different bugs that their patients in their study had. It's not mentioned as you know as to whether any of them were multi-drug resistant and how effective their drug was against that. So that makes me think that they probably wasn't that effective because I think they would have really sort of hit home with that point if they had as a, as a selling point for the drug. I think another thing that both you and I, Freddie, from reading the article picked up on is the fact that in the methods they initially talk about aiming for three days of IV antibiotics with an oral switch, well, you know, in our, suddenly in our current practice in the UK, we would aim for 48 hours of an IV with and then switch to an oral unless there was a real need and the patients were really required that and were, were unwell. So the mean duration of IV therapy in this study was 5.7 days. And the mean total duration of treatment was 9.6 days. And when you bring that together with the fact that they've selected patients with lower PSI scores that tend to be on the younger side of people with CAPS, so they've got a lower chance of death in a younger age population, but still they're giving these patients nearly six days of IV antibiotics for a CAP, not a HAP, a CAP. I just thought that that in terms of antibiotic resistance and almost a bit of overkill in terms of treatment to maybe improve the results. What are your thoughts on that, Freddie? Yeah, I think that's another really important point. Um, There's a lot of evidence out there now that we can probably get away with less days of antibiotics than we thought for pneumonia and a bit of a move towards even five days total rather than let alone 5.7 days of IV therapy and like you said these patients who are young they seem to be not at the severe end of the PSI scale and I guess that sort of brings up what sort of setting the trial was conducted and what sort of patients they're seeing whether they're similar to the patients that you and I are seeing with pneumonia. 
Absolutely. Yeah. So I think just moving on, if we move on to the strengths and the weaknesses of the study, I think what I would say is I think, I think it's fantastic that there, this is a new antibiotic. As we start to run out of antibiotics, there's resistant rises for you know various common pathogens that are causing you know very common disease like community-acquired pneumonia. The more antibiotics that we have, the better. However, this study, there are very significant limitations that we've talked about that I think is going to, at this moment in time, maybe limit its use in our sort of day-to-day practice. Yeah, I think that's fair. I'm not going to be reaching for the amadocycline too soon, I don't think. I don't think it's on the formula in the NHS yet, but I have to say I haven't looked at the, uh, uh, in our hospital, I haven't had that discussion with one of the pharmacists, but I will look forward to uh, having that discussion with them. Okay, right. So let's move on to the final part of the show, so the good stuff segment. So I will kick us off with my good stuff. And today I have got an article uh, which got an interesting title called Humans and Not Yeast. Now, this was an article that is available on, I think it's the Annals of Emergency Medicine, but you type, if you type in Humans and Not Yeast into Google, it comes up first search. I can assure you, really interesting article about the background of using lactate and sepsis, some of the misconceptions about what lactate is and that lactate actually isn't a result of anaerobic respiration and it explores some of that history of it in a bit of detail and I found it quite interesting. So yeah, well worth Googling humans and not yeasts. And from my side of the things, just whilst we were looking for journals online to discuss on the round table, I also came across a review on the JAMA about in-flight medical emergencies, a review. Very interesting. And it was just as someone that is a keen traveller that uh, is often out and about around the world, I've yet to be asked to answer the call to help somebody on a plane at you know X thousands metres in the air. But it just has a lot of handy hints and tips and advice if you are called upon in that situation. So I would look that journal up and have a read. Yeah, and there's a podcast that goes with it as well, which I've actually listened to while I was on a plane. <laughs> so it is quite useful to have downloaded, ready to go, just in case there is an emergency that you need to attend to. Fantastic. I haven't actually haven't listened to that yet, but I will uh, download that, Fred, and give it a whirl tomorrow. But I think that brings us to the end of this week's edition of The Rounds Table. Yeah, that was uh, interesting. Thanks very much, Alex. Pleasure as always. Yeah, absolutely. I, I look forward to seeing you again. Yeah, speak again soon. Cheers then. Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. Read more at healthydebate.ca slash roundstable. Follow us on Twitter at Roundstable or on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. The Rounds Table would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind-the-scenes personalities. Thank you to all of our hosts, to our producer, Emily Hughes, audio editor, Emilio Garcia-Flores, communications director, Grace Zhao, segment director, Shaliza Halani, Host Director Dan Marinescu, Director of Quality and Evaluation Wilson Kwong, and Faculty Mentor and Founder of the Rounds Table Amol Verma. Join us next week for an exciting discussion of the latest medical research to grace the airwaves. You never know what's in store until you tune in. <laughs>